Before we begin, a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. In particular, a huge debt of thanks to our cabinet member level supporter, Arlena Frank-Waller. Your support is critical to the success of this podcast. Another thank you is owed to our ambassador-level supporters, Jeff Flores and Todd Kent. Thank you to all of our patrons for making this episode possible. Together, we are reaching the top government podcast charts in countries ranging from Europe to Asia, and we are just getting started. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the new Diplomatist Podcast, and as always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and I'm very excited to announce that for the first time ever, we have a return guest on the podcast, Mr. Massimiliano Gabato of Pub Affairs Brussels. Massimiliano, it's an honor to have you back on again on the new Diplomatist. Oh, it's my honor, and thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, for those of you who've been following our podcast for a little while, you'll know that Massimiliano came on last September. But for those of you who are new both to the podcast or to Massimiliano's career, do you mind giving just a brief introduction, sir, of your work at Pub Affairs Brussels to the listeners? Yeah, gladly. Well, I'm communication director at Pub Affairs Brussels, which is a platform for debate, news, and exchange of opinions on European affairs. But we take in highly, highly into account also uh, global affairs. I've been working for the uh, European media industry for some time. I've also worked in the, in the NGO sectors, and I've contributed as an independent researcher to several publications. Definitely just a resident expert on all things EU and European. Very glad to have you on today to discuss what's been going on in your neighborhood of the world, because there's been quite a bit. And obviously, we would start off with COVID, which is obviously foremost on everybody's minds these days. In particular, we can zone in on kind of the, the current, uh, I would say the two major topics of, of contention for Europe at the moment, one being the continued effect and rollout of the COVID relief package as part of the EU budget, uh, well over a trillion dollars worth of spending there. Perhaps you could update us on, on how that's going and then tie it in with that vaccine distribution. Maybe we could address some of the struggles that, that Europe's been facing there and how that interplays with Brexit and Article 16. Yes, the rollout of the of the COVID vaccine is indeed one of the most uh, pressing issue in Europe, especially if we compare the figures with the UK uh, and the US, where the rollout uh, has, has been definitely stricter. And well, you're indeed right in in connecting the rollout of, of the vaccines and the, and the recovery plan for Europe, because obviously they go hand in hand. From the last time we have talked, uh, that was before the election of, of President Biden. Europe was in, was in the middle of discussing the EU budget, so we've missed a little bit the saga on, on, on the budget and on Poland and Hungary being at the center of a dispute on, on the rule of law, as European institutions wanted to, to link the, the, the rule of law to the recovery fund. In this sense, it has been, it, it has been a hard time for Europe also because at the very beginning uh, of, the, of the pandemic, where the, the, the European Union kicks in strongly, there have been some episodes of, let's say, non-solidarity, to put it mildly, uh, especially some blockage of medical gears and uh, medical equipments that could have served one member state or the other. And from this consideration, the idea to centralize the vaccine rollout at the European level came up. 
and the and the European Commission has taken the lead. Clearly, th- this has become the, the priority number one for for European institutions, and along with the recovery package, because obviously the rollout of, of the vaccine will will improve the reopening of the economy and should help the recovery uh, of the economy. This process has definitely not been as simple and as linear as it was forecasted by by some at the very at the very beginning. First and foremost, because European institutions, uh, it, it is the first time that the European Commission have been tasked with such a massive project, let's say. And the second thing is that, that there has been quite a controversy with pharmaceutical companies, especially with, with AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca regarding the contracts. Uh, and uh, uh, specificity uh, to to what it, what extent and with which speed the companies could have provided uh, provide the vaccine. That's where the slip up, let's say, of the European uh, institutions came into play. As at a certain point, uh, AstraZeneca announced that it was not able to deliver as apparently they, they agreed with European institutions, and indeed there was a slip up of the European Commission by trying to trigger export restrictions to the to the UK in order to put pressure to the manufacturers in order to have more um, more doses of the vaccine for Europeans. I would rather say it's a, it's it's a small crisis not compared with the UK. I mean not if we if we compare this to what has happening in the UK but to the situation in Europe the most important that they political point to to, to give attention to is the fact that it has been questioned whether European institutions can handle this type of uh, operation at a European level. This, is, this, this, has been, this is very important because it, it has been uh, the, the, the credibility of the whole European Union has been put on the table. Yes, I think this is this is the political point that we have we have to take into consideration. As for the recovery plan, it should be also noted that. Let's say that there's also a delay in, in, in the rollout of the, of the recovery plan, meaning that the European Union has the capacity to do it, and it's uh, obviously uh, it will be a massive project. But there have also been some, some concerns about, about the timing, about possible political squabbling and possible political instability, as it has happened in Italy with, uh, with Mario Draghi and the fallout of the Italian government, obviously, before... And I definitely want to get to the Italian question here in a second, but just one last point on the the COVID European continental wide response. It, it really is to me, it seems quite surprising, as you mentioned it, that a crisis has actually prompted sort of a, a reconciliation of views in Europe. You know, after Brexit, I feel like there, you know, at least from the American perspective, there was quite a bit of a debate when it came to does Europe loosen its uh, attempt at ever closer integration to allow more freedom and autonomy on a state-by-state level, you know, to try and prevent maybe an Italian exit or for a while there was a Dutch exit being discussed. And then there was a debate about, well, no, maybe the solution is to integrate further to show that the EU can work as long as we don't stand halfway through the door. Let's go all the way into uh, European yeah. integration. Yes. And I feel like the COVID crisis, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of helped provide a vehicle for that to happen. First with the relief packages where you have continental-wide EU debt being raised for the first time in the bond market backed by the EU rather than individual countries. That was significant. And then, you know, just for clarity purposes as well, for the American audience of this podcast who may not be quite as familiar with the inner workings, the EU took a very strategic decision, which you mentioned, to handle the vaccine rollout on an EU-wide basis. So Germany, France, they're they're as much dependent on the EU for the rollout of the vaccine as smaller countries. 
And, you know, I noticed that this had created an interesting power equation, is what the New York Times called it, where they said that the bigger and richer countries like Germany and France, which could have afforded to sign contracts directly with the drug makers like the U.S. and Britain did, saw their vaccine campaigns delayed by the more cumbersome joint effort, while smaller countries wound up with better supply terms than they were likely to have negotiated on their own, end quote. And so it's created this weird dynamic in Europe, hasn't it, where the smaller countries are doing better than they would have in getting vaccines because they didn't have the industry to spin up. But the larger countries, Germany, France, and so on, they're watching you know, Pfizer, which was uh, co-producing their vaccine with a German BioNTech company. They're watching AstraZeneca, an EU-based company, you know, sell these vaccines overseas. And yet they're, they're still waiting in large part for a, a much slower rollout. What, what do you think that that impact would be on this attempt for the EU to continue to integrate? Do you think it's being viewed as successful and these are just bumps in the road? Or do you think it might put a pause on, hmm, maybe integration isn't going to solve these problems? What what would you say? Yes, well, I no, no, no. That's, I, I, my opinion will, will directly lean on towards defining this as a bump in, uh, as a bump in the road. Most of the, criti- of, the, of the critics of the operation concentrate on the fact that the European uh, Commission, in this case, has never taken on this kind of uh, this kind of task, and they, they're not used to probably negotiating with uh, with, big, with big companies. That said, most important, the vaccine rollout will, even if delayed, will will take place. That's for sure on the one hand and on the other hand the, the shift uh, especially of, of Germany towards a more integrated Europe also in terms of, uh, of solidarity and in terms of uh, trying to, to give some relief to, to countries which have which suffered economically with special regard to Italy this is really the, the, the marking point the real problem with which we which persist and it has also been reflected in the debate of the association to the to the CDU leadership and most probably to the to the chancellorship of Germany is whether this kind of a shift towards a more integrated union and, and a more uh, let's say well it's it's a taboo word of, of a transfer union in a way or in, in any case the strongest player helping the the weakest player will be maintained during time or or not most of the commentators agree and also diplomats tends to agree on the fact that this will be a, a mechanism especially within the eurozone which will be maintained during time the last word is still to be to be said we don't know exactly what what the, the future will be to pivot from the the public health question into more of the specifics of certain domestic politics we've got two very interesting leadership changes one impending one already having happened. Let's start with the one that already happened, which would be in Italy. Prime Minister Giuseppe yeah. Conte having been forced out by votes of no confidence, more or less. Uh, I know he resigned, but, uh, you know, having lost the backing, he felt like he needed to successfully carry on. Being replaced yeah. by uh, what many people would view as a, a pair of safe hands, which is Mario Draghi, who was the former president of the European Central Bank. He navigated them through much of the Eurozone crisis this last decade. Um, perhaps you can bring listeners up to speed on what Draghi's ascension to the pinnacle of Italian politics might mean for that country and, and what kind of the outlook is for Italian politics over the next few months. Well, the, I, I would say the outlook for Italian politics and, and for the future of Italy as well. Well, first of all, I mean, Mario Draghi is, is pro- most probably, uh, we can say that he's the most successful example of a globalized Italy, let's say in brackets. So mm-hmm. he has had an international career, let alone the fact that he was the chief of, of the ECB. 
So nobody can object uh, Draghi's professionalism and Draghi's competence and so on and so forth. Uh, that's for sure. It's not by chance that the spread, so the difference between the Italian bonds and the German bonds have gone down uh, significantly just by, the, uh, by, by hearing the fact that Mario Draghi could have been the prime minister of Italy. What is, what is important to, to say, however, is, is the following, that we don't have to think that this was a choice. Uh, I mean, it, it is a choice, it was a possibility, but we, we, we should more precisely say that it was a necessity mm. because with Prime Minister Conte, which, by the way, should be reminded also that the fact that he has, was Prime Minister with two different majorities in the same um, in the same legislative period. Which was a first uh, for Italian politics, was it not? I'm not sure it's the first case, but uh, let's say in recent history is the first case. That's, that's yes, for sure. Yes, yes. The real question here in terms of, of Italian politics is the fact that there has been a, practically a failure of, of, the, of the Italian political system. On the one hand, they, they, they have to act responsibly because going to elections would require some processes which during the pandemic and during the recovery and during the rollout of the recovery plan would have not be beneficial for the country on the one hand. But on the other hand, also the fact that now we have an ultra-large majority which comprises also a so-called post-populist party socialist league led by Mr. Mr. Salvini, which is, which is quite, quite confusing meaning that Italy is often able, and that's not the first experiment of, of, of a so-called technocrat or a team of technocrats taking the government and leading the country, ensuring the country off. But the problem will, will be in the era after Draghi, which, is, which, which will be in less than two years with the, with the new elections, and how these very political parties will have to continue the possible good work that Draghi will carry out. Uh, we, we obviously all hope that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, he definitely has a, a sequence of challenges to face, but it is good and refreshing to see that they had someone to turn to in the time of crisis that they were facing. And, and hopefully, you know, we all wish him well in, in the work that he's pursuing. And it comes parallel to the rise uh, to significance of another new political leader, this one further north on the continent, in the form of Armin Laschet in the Christian Democrat Union party yes. leadership structure in Germany. Now, it is important, I think, to note, and you and I were discussing this the other day, that for the listeners, many of the... I would say media outlets on this side of the Atlantic have already pretty much christened Armin Laschet as the next chancellor of Germany. But we actually should clarify that's not exactly true. Uh, he is the next leader of the Christian Democrat Union party. However, there will still need to be elections for the chancellorship. But nonetheless, a, a significant opportunity for Mr. Laschet to achieve uh, that, that obvious goal to become chancellor. Could you maybe unpack a little bit of what the significance is of Armin Laschet becoming the heir apparent or the leading contender uh, to become the next chancellor in a post-Merkel era and what that might mean for Germany and, and Europe as a whole? Yes, well, this is a quite complicated question. It has been debated for, for some time. Indeed, everybody's asking what will Germany look like without Angela Merkel and what's we, and how can we define the post-Merkel era? The, the race between the two main contenders for the for the leader of the CDU party, which are which are not, notably Armin Laschet and uh, Frederick Merz, they were the, the most voted within the, the CDU party, and they do represent two different, let's say, uh, way of thoughts, which, which are present in in the CDU party. Merz represents the more conservative Germany, so. 
uh, in this sense, the, the, the Germany before, let's say, the, the COVID crisis. So more focused on budget rules, more focused on the role of Germany, which is a little bit more understated in, in the international arena, a more, let's say, conservative part, a more conservative part of the CDU. But, um, on the other hand, we have Avin Lachut, which represents the, the post-Merkel era, which comprises the, let's say, the shift of the recovery plan, and, and the shift roads are more, let's say, Anglo-Saxon way of, of considering the economy, so focusing less on the debt and more on growth and also on transfers and uh, a little bit more assertive on the global stage. By the way, you're, you're right by saying that I mean, Lashe will not be the, 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 I mean, it's not sure that he will be the candidate for, for, for the chancellor, chancellorship for, for Germany as well. There, there is also, in the equation, which we also put Markus Söder, who is the uh, prime minister of, of Bavaria. And as the CDU party are still to decide who will run for, for, the for the chancellorship, it's not necessarily the, the, the CDU leader. I mean, at least juridically speaking, it's... And also, politically speaking, the last word has not has not been said. And Soder um, is the head of the yes, uh, CSU party as well, the sister party to the CDU. So that gives him something of a parallel track politically to, to run in. Um, yeah, well, this, go, this dates back, let's say, during the Cold War. Bavaria is, uh, is maybe comparable to Texas in some ways, but uh, <laughs> uh, maybe this is... This, this is too far-fetched in the sense that it, it's, it's obviously part of Germany, but uh, it has its, its really specificity. It is, it's uh, perceived by Bavarians specifically and also by, by, also the, by all the other German as a, as a little bit of a different, let's say, different Germany in a way. It was ultra-powerful when Germany was divided. So Christian Social Union was, was, is, is the sister party, the Bavarian sister party of, of the CDU. And they have a little bit more of autonomy, also in political terms. Uh, it's, not, it's not by chance that they, they, it's a different party. They tend to have this kind of stable uh, support, uh, which, which was, was heavyweight in, in the federal government because of their support to the federal government. Nowadays, uh, with the, with the unified Germany, this has changed. But however, it is the house of the, the automotive industry. Uh, it's a very rich area, and also Markus Söder has been per perceived as being managing the COVID crisis. So that's also why he's, he, he has raised in popularity uh, in Germany. Uh, the second thing to to point out is the fact that. In terms of geopolitical issues, or in terms of, apart from mere rhetoric of, of being convinced European and convinced Atlanticists, the German debate has not included the role of Germany in, in the world, especially with, with, with regard to China. So uh, it's um, not uh, by chance that Munich Security Conference has high political terms, not much has been discussed for the time being. And this is also to, to, to be noted because Germany is assuming an increasingly important role, not only in Europe as, as we know, but also in the global stage. It's not a chance, in my opinion, that the investment agreement with, uh, uh, with China has been uh, finalized during the German presidency of the EU and with Merkel still in power. It's also uh, interesting to notice in, in, with, with regard to German politics in general and how that could evolve in the near, in, in the near future. 
is the fact that the polls say that the CDU, CSU and, and the Greens will most probably most successful parties in, in Germany. And it's highly possible that there will be a collision between these two. The fact that the CDU is, is and, and, it's the, and, the, and the Greens disagree on the finalization of the Nord Stream 2 project, which is no, notably an issue of of discussion between between Germany, Europe, and and the U.S. and the relationship with with Russia. Germany represents the intersection of all the major issues facing Europe on a continental wide basis. Um, like you said, whether it's the China trade deal, whether it's climate policy, and the potential future coalition between the CDU and the Greens, um, Nord Stream two, like you said, transatlantic relations with the United States, all of these things currently open questions. It's amazing how much German policy has really become synonymous with Angela Merkel herself. And in reality, I feel that there's there's very little to be known with certainty about what Germany will do in these various circumstances, not only because we don't know the final outcome of any political coalition, or even for a fact that Laschet will be the next chancellor, though that seems likely. It's that with Merkel gone, all of the questions that have been assumed to be closed or or answered in a certain way for going on two decades suddenly become open again. I'm really yeah, well, interested to I mean, see what that I, looks I like. I that it will be open again. Is the fact also that we have to take into consideration the fact that Merkel has always been ultra understated, has, has always utilized an ultra understated uh, foreign policy uh, tactic. I mean, I, I think the, the most significant statements of Ms. Merkel was during the, the, the Trump presidency when he came, when she came back to Germany and said, well, maybe we cannot consider the U.S. as, a, as an ally forever. Yes. And that was really, it was, it was quite shocking to hear that from, from Merkel because she, she tends to have the less visibility possible on, on the global stage and especially with special regard to, to transatlantic relations, for example. And I think this is a crucial point that we have, we have to focus on. Will uh, Germany continue this, this, this type of tradition, this, this type of modus operandi, or will it change a little bit? Will it change? Or will the debate, if, in, if the debate in Germany changes, what will be the repercussions? So it, it's still to be seen which policy option will uh, we'll win in Germany. You know, pivoting to the geopolitical and I would say the strategic level discussion, the three intersecting major ideas that are currently uh, having to be faced, or should I say three major issues needing to be contended with currently, there could be opportunities depending on who, who you speak to. And that would be the future of Europe with the United States, as you already hit upon a bit in that last statement, but in particular under a Biden administration now, because last time you and I spoke, it was the Trump administration pre-election uh, for all we knew, there was a potential that Trump would win again and that this would proceed, but we now know better. What with Biden having ascended to power, what does that look like? We'll talk about that briefly. But also, what does it look like with, with China? And in particular, um, this EU idea of strategic autonomy or this idea that they can function cooperating with the United States on many issues, particularly relating to security and trade, but also attempting to put a little bit of daylight between transatlantic relations to free the European hand to be able to maneuver more on the world stage. And then lastly, being climate policy. So and all of these intersect with Biden. So I guess all of this to say, let's start with Biden and just say, how do you perceive the, you know, I know we're only about, gosh, what is it, about three, four weeks into the Biden administration, but lots to discuss there from a European perspective. How do you feel Biden's initial moves and attitude, including his recent foreign policy speech, are being received in Europe, generally speaking. Well, the, the the question of of uh, of the of the alliance with the U.S. is very sensitive 
will be one of the features with which which will characterize the next four years and, and even more. After Biden's victory, there were two contrasting perceptions. Uh, the first one was it can be summarized with with with, uh, with a phrase like "Come on, boys, USA is back." The second one was uh, Europeans interrogating to which extent the Trump legacy uh, will influence or, or will be an obstacle. Also, the let's say the progressive agenda of, of Biden has been as welcomed as well. But uh, th- there is still a big debate on how Europe should relate with the U.S. and what does strategic autonomy, the meaning of strategic of, of, of the strategic alliance with the U.S. and the meaning of, of the strategic autonomy. We also have to consider that Europe tends tends to have rather a, a defensive approach rather than an aggressive approach towards geopolitical issue for for its very essence and for its for its very construction. Is there to be a geopolitical role for Europe as well or not? And to what extent should Europe uh, should be aligned uh, with the United States uh, with the United States or not? Russia could be could be another divisive issue in in the sense that if we see the debate in Germany once again uh, about the Nord Stream two. But the tendency of the German government is to say, well, let's separate human rights from businesses on the one hand, and, and on the other hand, there are also high-level politicians who are, who are arguing on the fact that the that Nord Stream 2, beyond the question of energy, is a way to maintain the ties with Russia, which most recently has, uh, has displayed some harsh reaction uh, also against the, the EU representative borough and, and against Europe in general. Important for a lot of listeners to remember the the debates regarding how the U.S. and Europe approach a third party competitor is really nothing new because even back during the Cold War with the Soviet Union there was a great deal of of consternation on both sides of the Atlantic at various points in time when the Europeans either felt that the U.S. was not leading sufficiently or perhaps they were leading too hard. You know, there's that kind of give and take within alliance structures. And we definitely experienced that during the Cold War. And I I see us experiencing the same thing as transatlantic partners facing China. But, you know, to kind of close out the discussion for today, focusing in on this Chinese trade deal. It was in Politico this week that the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi called on the EU to act independently and autonomously. And it was an interesting encouragement from Beijing because it came a day after the United States under President Joe Biden had vowed to confront Beijing with what he called, quote, extreme competition. And so you can see the, the, the tug of war trying to take place between Washington and Beijing with Europe in the middle. But that's really not how Merkel has seen it. Merkel's been pursuing yep. this, this comprehensive agreement on investment, the CAI, the trade deal with China. She's been pursuing this for quite some time. I understand it from the Diplomat magazine. It took 35 rounds of talks since 2013 to ink yeah. this trade deal with China. So very significant, very sweeping. To me, at least, this signals a continued period of, of Chinese prominence in European trade thought that that's not going to go away, regardless of who winds up leading Germany, who winds up leading Italy, what the EU commission decides to do. The the geopolitical reality is China's here to stay as a factor in the West. In in your view, do you believe that this this CAI trade agreement between the EU and China, is that a positive thing? Is that a constructive thing where China can become tied in with the West and perhaps loosened, trade liberalized a little bit, brought into the to a more cooperative arrangement? Or do you feel like this is the beginnings of, of kind of a continued struggle between the United States on the one side and China on the other? Well, first of all, 
uh, if we if we see the evolution of the position like um, with regard to China or the EU, we can we can say that well, there are two two things which we should be noted that that uh, President von der Leyen said at the State of the Union speech in September. So first of all. She has officially declared uh, China as a systemic ri- rival. I know it, it seems little, in, in, but it, it's a huge step. And also the question of human rights was mentioned during, during the State of the, um, of the Union speech. So if, you, if we think uh, the relationship with, with, with China about four or five years ago, it would have been unthinkable, these kind of steps. The second thing is, is the question of climate. So it has been, there was, there was Xi Jinping, Having the, the the speech at the United Nations last year, and and, and uh, climate was was one of one of the priorities uh, pointed out in this international forum, and and in, also in other international fora, and and also in Europe, the question to how to embark China, both China and the U.S. in in, in the question of climate change is not is not secondary about uh, how Europe should act, act in terms of carbon footprint and trade. And China is not considered a, a reliable actor because it's, it's very difficult to most of the time to have a sense of what, what is it's really happening in the country. So it's not transparent enough. And, and also it's the, 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 the status of, of China uh, as a developing country now has been questioned for years. So I think there is a, a sort of realization of the of the challenges that China poses, China is is not appealing for 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 many reasons. A coalition of of democracy, which most probably Biden will launch during his presidency, will have to take place, and that Europe has to take part to it. And and so I'd rather say that the, the, with the Biden presidency, there's a big chance. Uh, that there will be a kind of convergence, if not a perfect convergence, at, at least a convergence in terms of how to deal with the red dragon. I love that. It's a perfect description of convergence and how to deal with the red dragon. And unfortunately, we'll have to end it there because we've run out of time for today. But Massimiliano, it was an honor to have you back on the podcast again, the first twice appearing guest, but I know we'll have you on for a third time very soon because always much to watch in Europe. And we really appreciate you coming on board again for the new diplomatist. Really a pleasure to me, and I, I thank you again for uh, for having me. It's always a pleasure to to have a chat about international affairs with you.